<clears throat> if you would please turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy. And I'm preaching this for a couple of reasons. So one thing, uh, it just struck me when I read it of the beauty of the text. Uh, and then also because of the fact that we are getting close to the time of elected officers in the church. It is a very, very serious matter uh, to elect officers in the church. And so I want to touch on this this morning. Probably we'll deal with the second portion of this. this next Lord's Day. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> Let's give here as we are called to worship, as we hear the Word of God read. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. This is to Timothy, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. And pray for me, pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. It's such a rich text. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that whatever may be pressing upon our minds of unpleasantness, whatever be pressing upon our minds of the cares of the world, that you, by your grace, would remove them from us. Uh, that we, O oh Lord, would be in tune to the scriptures being preached, as this is the primary means of grace in the life of the Christian. And Father, I do pray that you would be with me as I proclaim this text. Oh God, may your spirit help me to preach you with unction and power, cause your people to hear and to understand, take away any prejudice, take away any misunderstanding, and bless us with your grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Bylaws. What are bylaws? By definition, uh, rules made up by a company or corporation whereby that company or corporation conducts itself and controls the actions of its members. Uh, it is to promote good decorum in an organization. The General Assembly and the PCA, we go by strict bylaws and Robert's rules of order at the assembly. And at the assembly, uh, they have microphones placed at different places, and so men stand at numbered microphones, and the moderator will say, microphone number one, or microphone number two, and the man addresses and uh, makes his point, and then he sits back down. Can you imagine if there was no restraint whatsoever, what would happen, and people fighting for position, people fighting to get to microphones, and there would be pandemonium erupting. As in a church in South Korea, when this presbytery got into a fist fight and they had to call the police to stop the fight at the presbytery meeting in a church in South Korea. They were passionate, apparently, about their positions. Well, that's not pleasing to the Lord for that kind of thing to happen at all. Bylaws, rules, they are important. And they are very important in the church. The Apostle Paul has been writing uh, this young man, Timothy. 
And he reminds this young man, Timothy, of the rules and bylaws in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he instructs Timothy to be faithful in abiding by those rules, in abiding by those bylaws, so that the church may prosper and function as it is supposed to. Everybody pay attention. This is the word of God. As it is supposed to. Because if it fails to do that, the church ceases to be what God has appointed it to be, and it ceases to bring glory to God in a manner that it is supposed to. It will, if you will, concern every member of the church, what is written here in this text. Every member is to give heed and listen to the things that are discussed here with Timothy by the Apostle Paul. would have to see this this morning. Because the church is in constant danger of internal corruption, division, asceticism, and heresy. The leadership of the church must see to it that proper conduct is observed by itself and by its members. In the first thing, then, the preciousness of the church is seen in the great care God requires for its well-being. The Apostle Paul stated this in Ephesus uh, started this church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. If I may read from Acts 19 and verse 10, Paul meeting with the elders after he had left and came back. We read this. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. I'm sorry, that's how long he stayed there. He was in Ephesus for two years. And he reasoned with them about the kingdom of God. And he met in the synagogue and there was prep. Per- uh, persecution against the apostles so he left there and they met at the hall of Tyrannus. have no idea what that is have no idea where it is but that's where they moved so that paul might teach the gospel and preach the gospel for those two years without being hindered and we understand as a good pastor paul had a deep affection for the church i had a professor who i did not respect very much say in class one day paul was a snot and he said that because when paul and barnabas were debating about taking John Mark with them, who was the cousin of Barnabas. And Paul said, no, we're not going to take him with us because he left us. We can't depend upon him. He's not reliable. And you remember it says in the scriptures that such a ruckus uh, broke out that they decided to separate and go separate ways. That's the last we hear of Barnabas. Of course, the rest of the book of Acts is a continuation about the, the ministry of the apostle Paul. Paul was a very, very loving man. He loved Christ, and he loved his people. Like Acts 26, this is when he comes back the second time. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. There wasn't much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that he would not see their face again. And they're coming him to the ship. Paul knows this is his last time to see these brethren, these Ephesians, that he had ministered to their needs. He had preached to them. He had taught them. He had wept with them. He had striven with them. And he knows he is not going to see them again and hear this deep affection he has for these Ephesians. And we would expect nothing else because they're bound together by the love of Christ. What unites us in the church is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ and our love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. That connects the church. And so Paul's bond with him was through the Savior. 
And we understand that the Apostle Paul knows that love is a demonstration of a sincere conversion. In 1 John chapter 4, 19 and 20, we read this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We see the danger in hating the brethren. The danger in despising someone, this is a part of the life of the church. Where Paul, where John says here that uh, this individual can't possibly be a believer because once you know the love of Christ and his forgiveness towards you being entirely undeserved, entirely contrary uh, to what you should receive from God, then it's all of grace. And here's this God <clears throat> who is infinite in holiness, who is altogether righteous. Loving me, altogether unrighteous and altogether unlovely before a holy God, altogether desperate in need of his kindness and his grace. And he loved me and he saved me because of that love. How can I not love the brethren in the church? As Paul here, as we see in the text, has such a great affection for these people. They wept, they embraced, they kissed him as Paul went on their way. It's something to say goodbye to someone you know you'll never see them again. You know you'll never see them. That's heart-wrenching. If you love somebody, that's very, very heart-wrenching. Well, Paul, when he departed Ephesus, he left Timothy in charge to manage the church at Ephesus. In his absence, Paul leaves Timothy there. What is Timothy supposed to do? Well, Timothy is to preach. He's to teach. He's to correct. He's to pastor these people. He is to be faithful in his duties as a preacher, teacher, pastor, and guide to the church. That's his responsibility. Now, what does it take to be successful in this? What does it take to be a successful elder in the church or a successful leader in the church? Well, we say, well, certainly it takes grace. It takes the Lord's help. And we acknowledge that where there are conversions, there's God's grace at work. When there is repentance, there's God's grace at work. When there's sanctification taking place in the lives of the congregation, that's what the pastor longs for more than anything else in the lives of his people. Sanctification, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming less and less worldly-minded. Sanctification, when that takes place, there is the obvious working of God's grace in the life of that church. When there's peace and unity there, there is the work of God's grace in the life of that church as he blesses those things. But even a man who was as gifted as the Apostle Paul was, the Apostle Paul was at least trilingual. The Apostle Paul knew well the scriptures. He was well educated. He was a very, very bright fellow. But Paul says this. That now then we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. There is that dependence on the part of Paul. There is that dependence on the part of the elders, on the part of the leadership to be totally looking to God to bless and prosper the ministry. Well, it calls for a couple of things, doesn't it? <clears throat> In the first place, it calls for prayer. A focused, 
concerted prayer on the part of the one who then Paul would say, here's how I want you to behave yourself in the church. This is your responsibility, Timothy. You're supposed to do this. You must do this. If you're going to honor Christ, you must do this. And so there is that recognition. I'm not sufficient in and of myself. He said, there's no room for pride in the life of any pastor or any elder, none whatsoever. And someone said to me one time, a long, long time ago, if you want to see pride, go to a Presbyterian meeting. He obviously had a rather tainted view of the Presbyterian meeting. But there's no room for arrogance and pride in the heart of a pastor. He is nothing more than a vessel. That is all a vessel. And whatever benefits God's people receive from his preaching and teaching, from his instruction, is all because of the grace of God. Paul says, I'm not sufficient of myself. Every elder, every pastor, every deacon, should say that I'm not sufficient in and of myself. But at the same time, listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection. For I deliver to you first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church, says the apostle Paul. But then listen to this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God. So that though there is that dependence upon God's for grace, there is that responsibility to labor and to work. Paul said, I worked harder than all of them. Grace, God's grace, does not negate the responsibility to work. In fact, it demands it. To labor. Uh, to read and to study and to think and to pray and to minister and to pastor. Uh, these things don't just happen by chance. They take an effort to do so. And faithfulness in the ministry is a hard and difficult task. And I would say in some ways it's probably the most challenging calling there is if you're faithful at doing it. If you're faithful. Now, there are people that are not faithful. And there are people that are lazy in the work. Uh, there are leaders who care a little for the honor of Christ and less for the people of God. Doug Kelly, Dr. Kelly. Y'all know who Dr. Kelly was. Called him lazy slobs. He can't say slobs, he said slobs because of his accent. Lazy slobs. They don't do the work that they've been called to do. It doesn't just happen. And so the Apostle Paul recognizes this, and he said, I worked hard than anyone, harder than anyone else. It's with this in mind that Paul addresses Timothy now. The church at Ephesus has come under the influence of false teachers. What do you do when they're false teachers? We just pray they go away. It's confrontation. Being a faithful leader in the church calls for confrontation in the life of the church. False doctrine combined with Gnosticism and decadent Judaism, false asceticism. That's what was taking place in the church in Ephesus. And keep in mind, Timothy, by nature, was not a bold man. By nature, he was a timid man. We read that in the scriptures. So Paul has to say, look, Timothy, you don't have a spirit of weakness. 
You have a spirit of power. The Spirit of God resides in you, not one of weakness, but one of strength. And, and the Lord, He abides in you. And also, He says, Timothy, your frequent ailments. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with him, but Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach. Apparently, he was so distraught by things that he had stomach ulcers or stomach problems of some kind or another. It doesn't tell us what it is. But he had issues. He had physical issues brought upon, very likely, by the by the uh, pressure that he felt in the church and dealing with these things. That simply were not present to, uh, pleasant to deal with. And nonetheless, that had to be done. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't know if he's going to be there. <clears throat> he knows he wants to come back, but he's not sure when he's going to be there. And he writes Timothy because he wants him to understand the responsibility as a leader in the church. When you leave town... You get somebody to take care of your house. I have to because I've got animals. I've got a couple of cows and horses. Not really. I've got a dog about the size of a horse. I have dogs. And people have to take care of these dogs. You have to feed them and water them and that type of thing. You know, you have to get somebody to do it. Well, you're going to get somebody that you trust. Somebody that's reliable. Somebody you can depend on. Even more so, think about this, leaving your children with somebody. You're going out of town, you have children who need to be looked after, and you get somebody to watch them. You leave them with somebody that you know and respect and are sure that they're going to take take good care of your children. Well, that's where Paul is with Timothy. There's no small thing for Timothy to have been left in charge of that church at Ephesus. Timothy was Paul's spiritual child. Ephesus was a church that Paul started. Paul has a keen interest in that church, as I think he did in all churches, but especially here in this case. And so he tells Timothy, this is how you are to conduct yourself in the church, how you ought to behave in the church, concerning your prayers, concerning worship, Concerning officers in the church, he talks about the officers that are to be appointed by Timothy in the church at Ephesus. And so in chapter 3, he gives the details of what these men are to be like, those who are to hold the office of elder in the church. Well, as being an elder attending a meeting once a month, is that what it means to be an elder? You go to a meeting, you vote, and you go home. No. Listen to this. Elders should always be on call. Always. Because there are times when you have to get up at night and go to the hospital because somebody had a car wreck. It's required. It's proper to do that. You have to be on call all the time. As a good elder. As a faithful elder. We are called upon to do that. That's a part of shepherding the people of God. Well, here he says this in the early part of chapter 3. He goes through the qualifications for the office of the, in the church in 3, 1 through 12. And every qualification listed, listen to this, every qualification listed has to do with the character of the man except one. Just one. Every one of them. Husband of one wife. Uh, he is uh, have a good reputation of those outside of the church. It's true of elders and deacons. But the one thing that's true of the elder that's not true of the deacon is to teach. Elders are 
to teach. That makes it easy to see your elders. Who are the teachers? Who are the people in the church that are teaching? You can spot them. That's easy. So that's the first step then. Who is the ability to teach? Every elder by default is a teacher. That's not true of the deacons. A deacon can be a teacher. Doesn't necessarily mean he's supposed to be an elder. But every elder, by default, is a teacher of of the scriptures. And it is not to say that every teacher should be an elder, but every elder should be and must be a teacher. Apt to teach, we read in the scriptures. That's one of the qualifications for being an elder. So here, Timothy, then, as an evangelist and as a pastor and as an elder in the church, has a responsibility to appoint elders in the church. He is to care for the church. And that's what it says for the elders. They are to care for the church. What does that mean, to care for the church? In the first place, I think it means you have to, deep, have, to have a deep passion for the love of Christ, of love of Christ in your heart. Because if you love Jesus, you're going to love his people. You can love the people in this church and recognize the responsibility to care for those people as an elder in the church. It's incumbent upon the elders to do that because if they doesn't, it's not going to get done, at least not in the way that it should be. There's an emphasis on doctrine. This book is so rich. So, so rich. As he explains the gospel, as he explains election, as he explains the meter between God and man. You look at the book of Ephesians, it's filled with doctrine like that. As that was one that was read in the midst of Timothy and the others who were there. There's a section well known for the care of the widows. And so Paul says, Timothy, behave yourself in the church. Conduct yourself in a proper manner in the church so that the church will be what it is called to be. There's a necessity of knowledge. There's a necessity of commitment. There's a necessity of practice. The theology in the scripture is practical theology. It's not theoretical. It is practical. And we can ask this question. Why is it that Paul is so concerned about these things? Why is he so concerned uh, to say, Timothy, uh, you need to uh, behave yourself in the church. I hope to come to you soon. I may be delayed. You ought to know how to behave in the household of God. That's a very significant term, the household of God. Well, again, why is it that Paul, was Paul just an uptight guy? Do we just want to have, Cindy Lauper's song, girls just want to have fun? That's with the, we are the Cindy Lauper church. We just want to have fun. That was a silly, stupid song. <laughs> but I remember it. I guess that says something. So, uh, doctrine and accountability of the elders, the business of taking care of the church. Why is it so important? Because the prescience of the church is seen in this fact. It is the abiding place of God. People get into all kind of discussions about buildings. It's not that important. I'm not saying it's not important. If we didn't have air conditioning, I wouldn't be here in the summertime. No way. Uh, I don't think any of us would be here. Air conditioning is important. That's something that is essential here in South Texas. But this isn't the church. This is a building. We worship here. But this is nothing more than a building church you look around that's the church those who christ has redeemed by his life and death on the res- in the resurrection uh, from the dead on the cross of calvary and so here he calls the church the house of god 
This image is used often in the New Testament. Hebrews 3, but Christ as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Whose house we are, he says. Peter, you also as living stones are being built together as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. So we are the house of God. We have God's spirit dwelling within us. We read that in the scriptures. He dwells within us. The spirit of Christ lives within us. And we are the church. We are the ecclesia. And it is this body that grows and matures and becomes more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ and must be governed by guidelines and by laws and by precepts. And here it's important that we remember that in order that we may be a church that is pleasing in the sight of God. He dwells us in some special a miraculous, mysterious way, the indwelling spirit of God in life. First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that in the spirit of God dwells in you? God resides in us. You ever think about that? It's not a superficial relationship. It's one that's inexplicable. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. But I know it's true because the Bible says it's true. The spirit of God lives within me and you if you're a Christian. And what does he do? What is that spirit that lives within us? And what does he do? He enlightens our minds. We read scripture and we come to understand scripture and there's the spirit of God working. We read a text and we read it, we read it maybe a hundred times, but this morning when we read it, you say, for some reason it really speaks to us. It's got significance as it never has had before. Why is that? Because there's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ applying that to your heart and mind in a time when you really, really need it. When my granny died, ten days before I got married, July 4th, 1979, I was working. Uh, we didn't get the 4th of July. I worked at Coca-Cola Company. And we were bottling Cokes on you know, July the 4th. Big day for the Coca-Cola company in Hasburg. Got a phone call. No, it didn't. Mother came to get me. That's what it was. Mother came out. Her uncle owned the Coke plant, so it was kind of nice. I didn't get any preps from it, any perks from it at all. But uh, people were kind of, uh, one guy said, why didn't you tell me you were marrying Dick's niece? Well, she was just by marriage. Blood can there whatsoever. I don't know why I'm even telling you that. It's got nothing to do with the story. So I go home. Phone call. She died. 79 years old. That day, 1 Corinthians 15 ministered to me greatly. You know what it's about? That's the chapter on the resurrection of the dead. God used that in my life to encourage me and comfort me in the lost. You see that? I read that chapter, I don't know how many times, but that morning, that day, it has specific application to me in a very concrete way. 
And there was God's Spirit comforting and applying and enlightening my mind. That's what He does. He guides us. He directs us. He comforts us. And I know I've told you this before. And I, uh, when we flooded, and you'll forgive me. Some of you have not heard it. Some of you have. If you have, bear with me. If you may not remember it anyway. Uh, if uh, you did know. We got word. We flooded in Harvey. I was in Atlanta. Oh, to do a wedding. Dan and Karen were with us. Dan was in the wedding. By chance, right? By chance that morning, my Bible reading. Job 37. God's ways are mysterious and wonderful. Job 37. And listen to this. For the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour. The mighty downpour, our sovereign God. He seals up the hand of every man, and all men whom he made may know it. The beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, and clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the whole inhabited world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen by chance. I read that that morning, right? No, no not at all. In his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his mercy. We had no idea what condition the house was in. None whatsoever. It had a foot and a half of water in it. And we did not get home until Thursday because couldn't get into Houston. There's a funny story about coming home. I'm not going to tell you about it. Get Karen to tell you about it. But God in his providence, in his mercy and grace and kindness, led me to that text. It explained it, you see. It wasn't by chance that this happened at all, but rather by the guiding hand of God that we flooded, that the storm stalled out over Corpus, pushed out into the Gulf by a high-pressure system, came back to Houston and dumped four feet of water in two days. Not by chance. For correction, for the earth, or for love. He does these things. This morning, this last thing to notice, this clock here has five to one o'clock. I don't think it's right. It is the house of the living God. Ephesus was saturated with paganism. You remember the temple of Artemis, temple of Iand, was there at Ephesus, one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world, thoroughly pagan. Well, as opposed to dead idols, 
Paul would have Timothy to understand. We are the house of the living God. It is God who gives life. It is God who sustains life. And it is God who gives us eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fountain of life. He is life itself. I had a cedar box when I was growing up. I uh, had my treasures in it. And someone was at my house one time in my closet, and I showed him this box that I'd had. I don't remember not having it. It had letters. It had cards and different things in it. And this person said, that's where your treasures are. And I, yeah, that's where they are. After Harvey, I never saw it again. I have no idea what happened to it. And you see how quickly the so-called treasures of this life pass away. But the treasures we have in Christ are eternal and ever-abiding. God cherishes his church. Do you cherish his church? Do you cherish the teaching of the church? I am committed through and through to the Reformed faith. I love it. I think it is so precious, so rich in its doctrine, and so full of grace to God. I love the Reformed faith, and I love his church. And I praise God for the opportunity he's given me to preach. 32 years I've been here. 32 years. It seems like much less than that. Much less than that. And I love what I do. There are challenges. Absolutely, there are challenges. But to be able to give the word of God to people and call people to faith and call people to repentance is indeed an awesome responsibility and a great gift. Do you support the ministry of the church? Then make his word a part of your heart. Hold it properly. Defend it. Live by it. Conduct yourselves in the way that God would have you conduct yourself, being submissive to the session as long as it is submissive to the word of God. And rightly conduct, right conduct is a testimony to the sincerity we give to the gospel. You hear that? Right conduct is a testimony to the seriousness which we give the gospel. Do you love Jesus? If you don't, I would encourage you to come to faith. Let's pray.